Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. With VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertus.ie forward slash VMware. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, we'll hear how electronic patient records are helping with efficiencies in our hospitals. Bolt will explain how our travel habits are going to continue to evolve around our cities. And we'll look at the management restructure at Meta. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. Uh, before we begin, I want to let you know that the review of the Samsung Galaxy S22 Plus went out on Tuesday's Pat Kenny show. So if you missed that and you're interested in hearing my thoughts, you can listen back on the Pat Kenny Show podcast. Uh, just search for the Pat Kenny Show. Hit subscribe and you will get every episode every Tuesday when I'm on with Pat. I was very impressed by the phone, but I'm very, very eager to get my hands on the Ultra. That was the one that I spoke to Quentin Doran O'Reilly about last week, the one that comes with the stylus. So hopefully I will have my thoughts on that device for you very soon. But we're going to kick off this week's show talking about healthcare. We know that the cyber attack, the ransomware attack on the HSC was one of the biggest stories of uh, last year. All eyes were on cybersecurity, but also the use of technology within the HSC. I'm joined on the line now by Anthony Dorr from Kanos and David Wall, the Chief Information Officer at Tala University Hospital, to hear about electronic patient records and how they're being embraced in this particular hospital. Um, Anthony, if I could begin with you, can you just start by telling us a little bit about Kanos? Yeah, so Kanos has been around for around 30 years and we're based out of Belfast and operates predominantly in the UK and Ireland, although we're growing now into North America and Europe. And the main thing we focus on is enabling customers to undertake a digital transformation journey, usually using cloud, and achieve a great experience for their customers through the enablement of uh, a technology adoption. And a lot of our customers would include the likes of, say, NHS Digital. Um, the NHS app in England is a project we've done. And in Ireland, we've worked, obviously, with Tally University Hospital, and also Gore University Hospital and the Children's Hospital in Ireland as well. And anybody who's been paying attention to the healthcare sector here in Ireland over the last number of years will know that we're no strangers to technology. Uh, we're going to talk about the HSE cyber attack, I'm sure, in a little while. But bit by bit over the last number of years, we've embraced different systems. And one of them is um, electro- electronic patient records. For anyone who like looking for them who hasn't come across one of these before. Uh, can you just again give us an overview as to what exactly that is and how it replaces the traditional paper bundle that we all would have been familiar with? Yeah, so I started my career back in 1996 as a radiographer where we were using film and chemistry to produce images and they would be shared around on trolleys to doctors in the hospital or they'd be put in taxis and shipped across to other hospitals where the patient would be treated and it was obviously very inefficient from a, a care perspective and in the last 20 years or so companies like Kanos and technologies like cloud have allowed transformation across healthcare to really shift how care is delivered um, and where it's delivered and the advancement in care has been 
more marked in certain areas, mostly in kind of departmental systems like radiology or labs. But in between those kind of specialist areas of care, we've seen a kind of a, a bit of a lag behind in terms of transformation. So a lot of hospital notes are still paper-based and they still are relatively inefficient in terms of being able to manage care and transfer patients' care around organisations. And so along with what we see with slanter care, we're seeing a lot more appetite, I suppose, to embrace uh, digital transformation and really look at ways of making care more efficient and, and changing the point of care. And really to have ICT that supports that is a real necessary enabler. So what we've done with Tala is, is been able to take the best of breed approach that they've got, where they've got really established mature systems, bring the data from those systems together, but also start to work with the clinicians in a really agile way where they are able to kind of help us from a service design perspective, understand what they need from a system in order to deliver the best care for their patients. And so over the last 12 to 18 months, we've been working with those clinicians in Tala and really developed a system that allows them to now transform how they deliver care in a really more efficient way um, and a digitally enabled way. And I think that will allow Tala University Hospital to deliver care beyond its walls into the community which really aligns well to the Slanter Care programme. Uh, David, if I could bring you in at this point, you know, any system that gets integrated into your hospital infrastructure, I'm sure has to meet certain standards. It has to tick certain boxes. How involved were you and your team with the process that Anthony and his team were designing to ensure that it wasn't just, uh, you know, a generic platform, that it really did suit what you needed it to do? Yeah, so I suppose as part of the whole process, we were very conscious that we needed to involve our staff at every point of the journey. So, you know, we, we implemented uh, the uh, Kena solution in a, in a very agile manner. And what that meant was we went through a number of different stages and we went on a journey. And in fact, we, we took our, our clinicians through the patient journey that every patient in a hospital goes to. So what we would have started out with was what we called a discovery session. And what the discovery session was basically sitting down with every clinical specialty in the hospital, understanding how they work, understanding what information they need. And it's all about presenting the right information in the right place at the right time, how they would like to have that information presented. Um, then it was about then taking those requirements and then sitting down. And as part of that discovery uh, session as well, Canis uh, staff would have been part of that. So it was a very collaborative effort between uh, sorry, my team, which is the EPR pro uh, program team, the KNOS staff and our clinical staff and nursing staff and our health and social care professional staff. So we all sat around the table. We went to a series of workshops over a three month period. At the end of that three month period, we had come up with a design. And I suppose we had a couple of principles around that design. You know, that design had to be, you know, access what we call access anytime anywhere so basically that everybody was able to access the information no matter what computer or what device they were they were going to be working on in the hospital um, it had to be designed in such a way that is what we call user friendly so that the clinical staff using the information you know were able to see what they needed to see they were able to navigate or move around the electronic patient record seamlessly and easily and it presented all the right information to them so it was very much a collaboration process so once we had that, that kind of phase completed, we were then into what we call the development phase. And that is very much an, iter an iterative phase, as we call it. And what that means is, 
you know, canis would go off and develop something. As soon as it was it was developed, they would show it to our clinical staff and uh, give them sight of it immediately. And once the, the staff got sight of it, then they were able to say, yes, you're on the right track, keep going, or change this, change there. So it was very much that iterative cycle till we refined it to such a point that the staff were happy with what they, they were seeing. So very collaborative, um, very involved from all the parties. And just from a workflow point of view, you mentioned the staff there, how does this benefit them or how have they had to shift their behaviours to embrace this technology? So I suppose the, the, Tala University Hospital has a, has a long uh, tradition and reputation around innovative and applying innovative technology in the hospital. So again, it wasn't that big a shift from that perspective from the, from the staff. You know, they're very used to using technology in the hospital. And EPR is something that, you know, a lot of hospital staff have been asking for for a number of years. So from that perspective, the appetite was there and people wanted to be involved in it. Um, in terms then of, I, I suppose, the, the workflows, we, we made a significant investment, you know, in technology, uh, underlying technology within the hospital to allow people to access the information. So uh, we, we did major upgrades around our Wi-Fi. We did major upgrades around our desktops. And we you know, made major investment around what we call workstations on wheels. And essentially, they're computers on carts that staff can move around their clinical area. So, you know, we deployed four of those per for each ward so people could access you know, all of the information they needed. In terms then of, of what the benefits it gives to staff, you know, it's all about you know, having that single view of the patient record. You know, as, as Anthony would have referenced there, we, we took a best of breed approach um, to, how, to the EPR. And what that meant was, uh, if I could just talk you through the patient journey for a while. So when a patient gets referred to, to a hospital or you as a patient come to the hospital, we have information that's held on electronic systems and we have information that's held on paper. So you know, you'd have your patient administration system, which is like a hotel booking system. You know, it records all your demographic details, it records all your upcoming appointments, all your past appointments, all your next of kin details, etc. Then you might go to the laboratory and have laboratory tests done, and that information is in the lab system. Then you might go to x-ray and have some radiology exams done, like a CT or a general x-ray. And we've got other such systems in the likes of our ICU and in our cardiovascular system. So we have all this information in different silos or different buckets. And the challenge for our staff was they knew the information was there, but it, it took a long time for them to access that information and create that, that, that single view of the patient record. So what we have done is we've essentially brought all that information together now and we have created that single view. So that's the first major benefit um, to, the, to the staff in the hospitals. They now have that single view of all the, the relevant information for each of their patients. So that improves patient care and it improves patient outcomes. Um, what you get out of that then is that you've got improved care, what we call improved care coordination. So then, because if you've got patients who are, you know, between different clinical teams, um, you know, one team might not have access or might have, mightn't have shared all the information. So now we've got improved care coordination between all, if you're, if you're dealing with multidisciplinary teams. And ultimately, you know, what we want to build to in time is improve patient outcomes because once now we have all this information and we're recording it digitally we're going to be able to analyze that information so we'll be able to improve our patient outcomes we'll be able to improve the treatments we provide to patients we'll be able to do a lot more of uh, research we'll be able to do a lot more of clinical audit 
And I suppose the final be benefit is really then one of, of, of efficiencies and cost savings, because for, first of all, we're not going to be producing as much paper. Secondly, we're not going to have to move that paper around. So there's, there's, there's efficiencies there and there's cost savings. Um, and ultimately, then in, in the later phases of our project, we're going to be adding more information and more systems and building up that picture of the patient record all the time. So ultimately, what they're, they're the main benefits it's, it's immediately has provided to our staff in the hospital. Yeah, and I think all of those elements that you've just outlined, it makes perfect sense. And I think you would be hard pressed to find issues and flaws with the system until you have a cyber attack that brings the entire health service to a standstill. As you were rolling this out and as you were embracing different levels of innovation, as you alluded to there a minute ago, how much disruption did this cause? And then, Anthony, I want to hear about it all from your side as well. But David, if you can just talk us through that side of things from, from the hospital's aspect or the hospital's point of view first. Well, actually, in terms of our EPR project, the cyber attack, you know, didn't didn't uh, affect us or, or provide any disruption to the project whatsoever. In some ways, it actually uh, increased the appetite for uh, uh, having the electronic patient record in place, because, again, uh, what people seen was the effect that the cyber attack was having on the health service, uh, you know, countrywide. And no doubt it did have a significant impact countrywide. In Tala, we, we were quite fortunate in terms of the systems and resources we had in place. So it had a minimal impact. But what it actually did was drive the demand uh, for our electronic patient record. And I suppose when we were implementing the electronic patient record, you know, we had considered cybersecurity and all, all other such things as that. And that was one of the reasons why we chose because we went with a cloud platform we knew that cloud, cloud platform was secure and um, we also have had redundancy built in both to the platform and how we connect to the platform in order to access the information so again you know there are there are there are things that you know health organizations can put in place you know to mitigate you know the threat of any kind of cyber attack but as i say in our case what it actually did was increase the appetite from people to say you know we need EPR now more than ever, because if you have a cyber attack, what you want to ensure is that you still have that clinical information available to the clinical staff in the right place at the right time. So they're able to continue to treat patients. So am I right in saying that this, that, that level of information, your EPRs weren't impacted then at all by the cyber attack? No, the 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 uh, the hospital had a, a slight impact uh, in terms of the systems that we we get access to from the HSC, but we also provide a number and host a number of our own systems as well, um, so we had minimal impact on those. Um, so from an EPR program perspective, we went live with the with the actual system in November, and the cyber attack was in May, so it had no impact whatsoever on on our our program what's, uh, whatsoever. That's incredible. Uh, so, Anthony, have you seen then a demand in your services uh, since the cyber attack as others look to build systems as Tala clearly has? Yeah, it, it's interesting. What's actually driven uh, the growth of, of solutions like uh, the product we've delivered for Tala is actually more uh, COVID and the demand for kind of rapid, agile, cloud-based capability. Uh, and that's really been a, a, a big impact on, on what customers are wanting to do with platforms like ours. Um, from, from a cybersecurity perspective, Kanos does an awful lot of work with UK government. We provide a lot of those national systems. So, and of course, uh, cybersecurity is at the core of everything we do. And, and we work uh, very extensively with partners like AWS to make sure that we avail of 
all of the inbuilt security features that these cloud platforms have, and we bring those natively into the platform and solutions that we build for clients like Teller. Um, and, and then the other component, which is equally as important, is cybersecurity is a moving feast, right? So it's it's you need to be monitoring it and, and be on top of it 24 hours a day. So the other components we provide to Teller University Hospital is a managed service. Um, so not only do we manage the infrastructure, but we're managing all of the kind of the live ops capability uh, on a 24 hour basis and are able to then, you know, deal with any kind of emerging uh, global threats from a cyber perspective and, and take the necessary uh, steps to kind of mitigate that. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really important that we work with the likes of uh, Tally University Hospital and their ICT team to make sure that security is embedded right across the the operation of the system as well so uh, managing you know privileges for users so that they're only uh, what's needed and, and making sure encryption is in place making sure network connectivity is secure so there's a whole holistic view to security that we take uh, to really mitigate against cyber incidents. Well, it does sound like a very comprehensive solution. And as we heard uh, David outline there, that the benefits to the hospital and the health service are numerable, as well as the patient as well. Uh, so again, thank you so much to you both uh, for your time. And uh, hopefully we'll chat to you again soon. Thanks. Nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you. That was Anthony Dorr from Kanos and David Wall, the Chief Information Officer for Tally University Hospital. When we come back, we'll hear from Bolt about our changing habits when it comes to getting around our cities. Tech Talk on News Talk with VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertus.ie forward slash VMware. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Tech Talk at Newstalk.com. As ever is the email address if you would like to get in touch or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. Uh, one of the topics we've spoken about quite a bit on this program over the last number of years is uh, micromobility, so e-scooters and such. Uh, there's no doubt that how we get around our cities has changed dramatically over the last number of years. But as our next guest will explain, uh, that is only going to continue. Uh, Ashling Dawn is the head of policy for Ireland at Bolt and she joins me now. Ashling, you're very welcome to the show. Before we talk about the research that you've conducted and the findings of that research, would you just give us a brief reminder as to what exactly Bolt is? Absolutely. Thanks, Jess. Yeah, so we're operating in 45 countries across Europe and Africa, and uh, we have 100 million customers worldwide. So we're a pretty big operation. What we're trying to do is help cities uh, to build cities for people not cars. So uh, we are providing a range of services from electric scooters to electric bikes uh, to ride hailing. So the equivalent of that in, in Ireland is taxis um, to also Bolt Drive, which is our car sharing, you know, short term car rental. Uh, and then we've also launched in the last year uh, food delivery and grocery delivery. And the idea is to provide a full range of services for people living in and around cities so that they don't need to have a private vehicle, depending on where they're going, the distance, the needs they have, whether they're bringing kids or whether they're going to do the big shop or, or whether they're going out for a few drinks, there is the appropriate transport mode available for them. Um, and that then is supplemented and, and, and is in conjunction with obviously the public transport in a city and walking as well, depending on the distance. So I suppose we're trying to contribute to a full multimodal offering for cities that ultimately lead to a reduction in, in car ownership. 
Yeah, and if people have been to cities around the world that you're operating in, the one that springs to mind for me, I think, is Lisbon. Um, but you are very, very visible. D- does Bolt take the learnings from different countries and then apply that to other countries that they're entering? Or is every country unique to a certain extent based on what their public transport offering is and based on you know how walkable a city is, that type of thing? Yeah, it's probably a bit of both. I mean, there's been a fairly meteoric rise in the use of, of electric scooters, for instance. You know, it's, it's a whole new transport mode, really, um, which doesn't happen that often that something new takes over uh, in such a way. And it has been successful in some cities and has been challenging in others. And there have been difficulties. And definitely Bolt has learned from that. And as they enter other cities or as they change their, their operations, they've made adjustments from those learnings. Similarly, you know, you look at cities and they might be have unique um, circumstances because the public transport offering is brilliant or it's awful or um, it is a very walkable city or it's, um, you know, a very uh, ancient city and the, and the streets are not compatible with certain types of transport. So there's an element of learning from other cities and then also looking at each city individually and seeing what's the most appropriate offering for them. Mm. We know that a lot of people, and particularly the younger generations, they're very uh, eager and they're very aware of things like their carbon footprint. Uh, Also, the financial output and the financial overheads that come with owning a vehicle themselves. Um, But but I do think the environmental side is something that people are really, really waking up to now, which is great. And you've carried out some research looking at how people's behaviours can be shifted if they're offered an alternative. Yeah, yeah. So over last summer, Bolt conducted research with the Institute of Transport Economics, which is uh, based in Norway. Um, And we looked at 10 different cities across Europe and used a group of people who would be ordinarily logging on to the app to to hail a taxi. Uh, And we split the group in 60% as a control and 40% as the target group to see that if we suggested an alternative mode of transport, in this instance, scooter, for short journeys where it was less than three kilometers, would people take that choice instead? And what we found was really interesting. I mean, um, depending on the city and depending on the the density and availability of scooters, you saw up to... um, 210% of users were more likely to choose a scooter as a result of that in-app encouragement. That ranges across the city, some cities where there was less availability of scooters, it was lower. So on average, it was about the 60%. But what, what was really interesting about it is that, you know, some people would think people are entrenched in what they want and and what their transport mode is. So if you go into a taxi app and you're trying to hail a taxi, if someone prompts you by saying, oh, by the way, there's a scooter 200 meters away, you know, will that really result in many people changing their behavior? And this study says it it does. And, And what's really interesting about that is it means that having a multimodal offering in an app, so having a range of choices for users can move them towards a more sustainable and appropriate mode um, when it's available. And, and that's great because it means that people who maybe you know were planning to get a taxi or maybe rent a car share, if they're prompted that there's a bike nearby or there's a scooter, um, will we'll make that change. And I suppose it all comes back to 
our one of our basic principles is that you need to make these things easy, that people's lives are busy and complicated and they have things going on. And if we want them to give up the convenience of their private vehicle and start using a range of different modes, we have to make it easy. You know, it, it, it has to be accessible. It can't be a whole load of different apps, a whole load of different payment schemes. I uh, can't remember which one they're signed up to. You know, it just that's what I think is, is so interesting about this. Mm, because there are multiple apps for multiple services that you can subscribe to and so on. But I, I guess having it in one place makes sense. But I'm interested from Bolt's point of view, because does offering a scooter or a bike not result in a loss of money for you guys if they're not taking a car, which may be the more expensive option? So what's the initiative or what's the incentive on, on Bolt's side for this? It's a very good question, Jess. I suppose Bolt's view is um, we're in this for the long haul. So yes, in the short term, maybe moving from somebody from a taxi to a scooter may derive less profit in the there and then. But if that person then goes on to use the scooter more frequently or to use the electric bike or to then at the weekend think, I'll use the boat drive, or maybe I don't need to own a second car as a family, or maybe I don't even need to own a car, um, and starts using a range of services and thinking more sustainably about wh- what is the most appropriate mode, then in the long term, that's a good thing. You know, like mm-hmm. it, it's to the benefit of the city, it's to the benefit of our users. And so ultimately that works out well for both. But I suppose we're taking a bigger picture view and trying to see how we can contribute to reducing emissions improving the sustainability of our cities, improving the connectivity for users. Um, And, you know, at the end of the day, hopefully that works out to make business sense as well. But I suppose the answer is it's it's a bigger picture Mm -hmm. and, you know, we're not looking at the short term losses on it. And from a, a regulation point of view and a business point of view, is there any hoops that that Bolt needs to jump through to to be offering those multiple services? You know, is it, uh, you know, does it equate to the same as, you know, Facebook having Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp? You know, you guys have multiple services under one umbrella. Is there, you know, extra barriers for you because of that? No, um, there are no extra barriers. I mean, Ireland at the moment is... Uh, is a tricky market in that we, as I'm sure you've probably had, you know, discussions about already, but scooters are currently in this kind of um, lacuna, you know, uh, technically illegal, but there's no specific legislation dealing with them. Uh, and the legislation is now before the Oireachtas and, and hopefully will progress over the next few months. But um, that will be to allow, you know, e-scooters to be regulated and introduced by city officials, um, hopefully before the end of this year. Um, in terms of having multiple um, services on one app, there's no prohibition or additional regulation. I mean, what will happen in the next few years is I think the Department of Transport is looking at building a state app, you know, um, a mass platform that's mobility as a service, which has been talked about for many years as being this kind of panacea solution to our transport troubles. Um, and until now hasn't really delivered but I think the Department of Transport and the NTA are looking at it and and it might take a couple of years where they'll be asking all the different operators to feed into one platform to provide information on where scooters are where bikes are where the Dublin bikes are where the buses are the Lewis the trains 
And people who want to go from one side of a city to the other will look at this one platform and will be provided with all the information they need. And they're looking at trying to ensure that they can pay for it all through the one app. They don't have to be paying for tickets when they get on the Lewis and then paying for the scooter when they get off the Lewis and want to go the extra two kilometers. So, I mean, when we have that kind of a platform, which which we have in other European cities and, and Bold contributes to and, and, and appears on the platform uh, along with other providers, you just have so much information so easily available for users um, that, you know, it's it's just so compelling that, people can make that transition but so us providing a range of those on our app in advance of kind of a state-run app um no there's no regulatory opposition or, or issues with it mm. it's funny when i'm listening to you speak there now i'm kind of running through my head how disjointed our mobility systems are at the moment in terms of as basic as paying so yes the leap card mm. is great but it's not, it's not, I suppose, the be all and end all. And it's also, I suppose, it's not as convenient as just tapping with your phone, for example. So do you think that we will see a massive transformation beyond the transformation that we've already seen when it comes to transport in this country? Yes, I hope I hope sooner rather than later, because I mean, our ambitions in terms of, you know, a 50% reduction in transport emissions by 2030, as you know, included in our climate action plan, uh, they're not going to be easy to meet. And I think we need to be trying everything we can to get us there. Um, so I will. I do think there'll be a big transformation. I think the ticketing is is a big part of that, and I know the NTA is looking at this next generation ticketing to to have it at a much greater level of integration. And probably even since they started considering it two years ago, or yeah, about two years ago, things have gone on, have progressed so much that now they're probably having to revise their, their views on it to see how they can incorporate with you know, operators because that's going to form part of the transport solution for cities. Um, in the interim, I guess what, what we're saying and, and what this study shows is that if you have a number of different services on one app, you can move them towards a more sustainable solution for a more appropriate journey. And if they already have things set up like their bank account details, they're not going into a taxi app. Will I get a taxi? Hang on, maybe I'll go into my scooter app. Will I get a scooter? Hang on, let me go into my bike app. Will I get a bike? That just, you know, will I have to put in my credit card details for all three? Will I, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it makes it messy, it makes it hard. And that is never going to, to work if we're going to really get to the modal shift we need. Um, so that's why I think this research is interesting. I think it, the, the bold proposition for Ireland is really interesting. You know, we're in, we're talking to councils about bringing bold drive in and, and, and trying to really see uh, the car sharing model take off. We, you know, we obviously have car sharing here already, but we'd like to see a lot more of it. Um, it's a really great solution for cities to provide people with, you know, a very low emission or EV depending on the city, um, but a, a low emission vehicle for those short journeys that they do need to have a, a car, whether it's bringing kids or, you know, doing the big shop or mm -hmm. whatever it is, um, but that they aren't using up the amount of space that private, privately owned vehicles take up. You know, we use our own cars so little and yet they take up so much space in and around a city that could be given over for, you know, more active transport uh, infrastructure and, and just 
outdoor space, public realm space to be used for for nice things like sitting outside and having a coffee. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there's a lot to do. And my final question is, is this something that will be replicated right around the country? Because I know people listening uh, very often get fed up because it's, you know, Dublin, Cork and Galway will get things. But then there's, you know, a whole host of other counties that, you know, need and want these opportunities as well. Is this something that Bolt is looking at for the island of Ireland? Absolutely. Yeah, we are not just focused on two or three cities. Um, There is uh, conversations happening with councils uh, up and down the country about what services are appropriate for their city or large town uh, or medium sized town. I mean, there is a there is a point, I suppose, until you get a critical mass, maybe in the bigger places that you can't go to the really small towns. But but we're very much um, keen to see what transport solutions work for an for an area, the appropriate size, the number of um, bikes or scooters or vehicles, because I mean, some of the the smaller areas probably are the ones who need additional um, offerings mm-hmm. the most, because maybe the public transport infrastructure there is is in need of. I don't want to say it's lacking, but you know, needs a bit more support. So. Um, Yes, absolutely. This isn't just for Dublin. Okay, that is good to know. Ashing Dunn, the Head of Policy for Bolt in Ireland, thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thanks so much, Jess. Great to talk to you. When we come back, Emmett Ryan of The Business Post is going to join me to talk about Nick Clegg's promotion. Tech Talk on News Talk with VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertis.ie forward slash VMware. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. As ever, if you want to get in touch, you can email techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. And we're going to talk about Facebook now or Meta as the parent company is now called. It seems that rarely does a week go by where there's not some form of news from the company. And this week there was quite a bit. Uh, so joining me to talk through some of that news is Emmett Ryan, the technology editor at the Business Post. Emmett, you're very welcome. Um, I want to start by talking about Nick Clegg and the announcement that was made in relation to his role and what that means. So for those who may have missed it, can you just talk a little bit about uh, what Mark Zuckerberg announced about that Nick Clegg role? Uh, Well, fundamentally, Zuckerberg decided that Clegg, who had sort of been his number two on public policy uh, matters, is now essentially going to be doing what Mark Zuckerberg was doing. So when it comes to engaging with governments and it comes to sort of, you know, anything political, uh, they're going to go to Clegg first, as opposed to whereas before they would sort of sort of have Clegg deal with some matters, but leave some of the more important stuff to Zuckerberg. And that's fundamentally what the change means. Is this a strategic move, given some of the not too pleasant headlines that Facebook and Meta have faced over the last number of years? Or is it just to try and clear the decks for Zuckerberg so he can focus on the metaverse? I think it's a bit of both. Uh, definitely Zuckerberg wants to have more time focusing on product, like focusing on the metaverse itself. But also like it's very obvious that whenever Mark Zuckerberg sits in front of any political body of any kind, the headlines are all very bad about him. Whereas in theory now, Nick Clegg will more often than not be the person going into those roles. Although that being said, there will still be times when Zuckerberg will be expected to be the face going forward, such as a couple of years ago when we had in the summer, it was the leaders of all the big tech companies and it wasn't their policy wonk. It was very much like the boss. It was Tim Cook. It was Jeff Bezos. It was Mark Zuckerberg. And so in that respect, 
it's going to involve some changes where we'll see more of Clegg in the, in the front facing, but there will still be times when Zuckerberg has to face the music personally. I remember when Nick Clegg joined uh, Facebook as it was back then, and it raised a lot of eyebrows because although he was a well-known politician in the UK, I suppose it wasn't it wasn't uh, a done deal. It wasn't sort of the ideal match made in heaven from a perception point of view. How impactful has he been in his role over the last number of years? It's very difficult to say how much of an impact he's had. Like, obviously, Clay comes with a lot of experience, but there was also an element of damaged goods with him because back in 2011, going into that election in the UK, I think it was, or was it 2010, I always mix up what year that election was, basically when the coalition was formed, Clegg was looking like the star of UK politics. He was comfortably the most popular across all the debates. Lib Dems got into government for the first time in the modern era, as in sort of, you know, well, basically since Ireland separated, you've got to look at like the, the Lib Dems as they, as they are, because it would have been the old Liberal Party then. It was their first time in government. And then everything basically went wrong for them and he oversaw the electoral collapse of the Lib Dems at the following election. So he subsequently lost a seat the election after that, which was somewhat of a, uh, you know, big blow to him. And essentially, Clegg, it was damaged goods, but he was also in a position where his experience at Westminster alone, and never mind having been deputy PM of the UK, he could have walked into any city job he wanted to and had a very, very, very nice salary, would never have to think about working again, essentially, because he would have been between that and regular go-to speaker, would have not had to do much in the way of hard work. Instead, now, it's probably substantially better remunerated job at Facebook, but one that was going to bring him a lot more heat and a lot more public eye pressure. So it was interesting that he made that choice. He also, a couple of years ago, made the decision to move to California to be close to Facebook's head office, whereas before he'd been doing the job from the UK. So I suppose it is sort of showing he's getting closer to the actual heart of how Facebook runs, like he's becoming one of the more important people in there. Very often when we talk about tech, nobody really cares about the policy side of things. It's always the new platforms, the new products, the new devices, whatever it is. But in recent weeks on this show alone, we've had, you know, executives from Instagram and from Meta itself talking about different things, whether that is data protection or keeping kids safe online. Do you, as a tech journalist, see more openness and more engagement from Meta with the media, with the public, trying to reform some of the damage that's been done over the last wee while? I certainly think they realize that they need to look better uh, because it hurts the product overall. Like the company lost a fifth of its value, for example, only a couple of weeks ago. And a part of it definitely is a public image that it was taking a while for it to have an impact, but certainly there is a Im- an image issue around privacy, which is hurting its bottom line. So they realize they have to do more around that and around the public good aspect. Like Facebook is sort of seen as tied at some of the most toxic toxic stuff, uh, rightly or wrongly, just to be clear, they're seen tied to it uh, when it comes to the internet. So they realize they have to be more active in terms of sort of trying to show that they are working at least to do more to be a better player on the internet a better part of the world um, especially as they want to become a dominant force and what they see as being an important piece of technology going forward and with the metaverse they realize they have to get ahead of it this time whereas they clearly were sort of playing catch up for the last couple of years and have been really over the last few years when it comes to trying to sort of save their reputation yeah and that reputation is it's an interesting one because you you can't deny the impact of uh, the meta companies. So whether that is Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp and indeed their VR initiatives as well. But if you look at someone like Sheryl Sandberg, who has been so influential in the direction Facebook and meta have taken over the last number of years, 
she hasn't sort of come out of this smelling of roses either. She is very much tarred with a similar brush, not quite the same brush, but a similar brush to Zuckerberg. Yeah, and like the classic question the last couple of years has been, where is Cheryl? Because she hasn't really been out in public to the same degree as she had been in years past. And, you know, given the role she was brought in for was to sort of be that sort of, you know, uh, public face second to only to Zuckerberg. It's interesting that she isn't really doing it at the moment. And Clegg has been seen a lot more than Sandberg comfortably uh, in, in in recent years. So I suppose that's one of the reasons they're bringing uh, Clegg in closer to the to the heart of how things operate, because if he is going to be that role where he is far more public facing, they need someone who is going to be able to manage when the dirt comes that way. Now, that said, like over those five years in power, you know, with the Tories and his subsequent three years uh, before he lost his seat, it wasn't like he handled the, the, the criticism all that well, but I suppose he will have learned from that. And it's a bit different when you're in an elected office versus when you're in an appointed office in terms of what you can and can't do. But if we look at the management structure in Meta now, you know, like very often, if you look at a company, right, and if something has gone wrong or if there's been a bad period, a bad few years, very often change at the top is demanded so that there is an actual change in how things are done. The key players still seem to be in their roles. They're just adding more prominence to one senior figure. And then otherwise, it seems to be business as as, as usual. Yeah, and that's a very fair assessment. Like the one thing above all else that seems to have been most important with Meta throughout all of this is keep Mark in charge. Uh, you know, they, they you know no matter what, Mark must stay as the boss. Like that seems to be their fundamental core goal. Like Sandberg felt more, you know, capable of being sort of, you know, parted with. But I think their fear was then that if like, you know, we lost Sandberg in their eyes, it would make Mark even more vulnerable. So in that respect, I suppose adding Clegg is their way of sort of insulating Zuckerberg to a degree. But I'm not sure exactly what real change it will bring about, because like you said, like the key players are still very much at the top in power. Yeah, I want to talk briefly about the metaverse. The last time, um, I think one of the last times we were talking, we were both a bit sceptical about the metaverse. I've since done a bit more reading into it and uh, I'm intrigued by it. I don't know if necessarily that's where I'm going to spend my time. But uh, Zuckerberg is very much, you know, pushing this is the future of this company. Yeah, like he's been obsessed with VR and AR for a very long time. Like the Oculus purchase, like you, you hinted at it, it's quite a few years ago now, like, but like for, you know, most of the last six, seven years, realistically, Zuckerberg has had very, very strong views of this is where Facebook was very meta now needs to go as a business. Like, and even though the world really hadn't, hasn't got there yet and hasn't shown that much sign in terms of progress of getting there, he clearly is a absolute true believer in this project. Like, you know, rightly or wrongly, as I was given the qualifier there, but there's no question he definitely believes this is where the future of interaction is, so to speak, and therefore Facebook slash Meta needs to be at the heart of it. But it does bring us back to that point I made a few minutes ago of, you know, if you want to continue to build a company, surely you have to get the house you have already in order before you can extend on it. And by that, I mean, you know, the last two years alone, we've heard so many very damaging things about Facebook, you know, whether that is through whistleblowers or through investigations for employees of Meta in particular. I wonder, would it be a better thing if they were to segregate the metaverse aspect of the company, set that up as a new company, let Zuckerberg run that and then let the old Facebook as it was with the different platforms continue in its own way? 
but that involves asking an extraordinarily rich, power-hungry man to give up some power, which is a very difficult uh, thing to do at the best of times, and this isn't the best of times for Facebook. Uh, so I think you're right, but I think it isn't going to happen is the short version. Also, I think Zuckerberg feels that if that, that, that they need that the success of Meta is dependent on the success of Facebook and vice versa, like the rebranding in one respect, it made some sense beyond the obvious business uh, sense of developing the company in that the Facebook name itself for, for hiring people isn't quite as easy a sell as a different name, even though it's the same company. Like it wouldn't be the first business to do that, by the way, as well, by any stretch and never mind large business. And so Zuckerberg doing that makes some sense, but certainly like getting Facebook, the core product in order, you know, getting WhatsApp in order, getting Instagram in order, they're all their own aspects. But I think Zuckerberg feels that to get all three of those in order, the metaverse is going to be the solution. Now, I'm not entirely sure he's right. He's made a lot more money than I ever will. He makes more money, in fact, in about a minute than I ever will. But at the same time, it's like doesn't mean he's smart in everything. And I really feel that he has become so committed to this one particular bet. I'm not sure exactly how rational he's being about it. And that's the kindest way I can phrase it. But, you know, before he took office, Joe Biden um, was very critical of social media platforms. And he kind of continuously said for years, like the whole way through Obama's years and everything, that, you know, something needs to be done about big tech. We are well into his reign as president of the United States and not a whole lot has happened. Yes, we've had the antitrust hearings. Yes, we've heard from the whistleblower Francis Hogan, but I haven't really seen anything substantial happen. Yeah, and uh, I think this is sort of reminding me of many of the other things we've had. It's kind of going, I'm sure a lot of people will say they're going to do stuff, but actually doing it is another matter entirely. And the one thing that seems to have made Facebook do any movement has been no government intervention of any kind. It has been essentially the bottom line risk. You know, obviously Apple brought in their privacy feature, which hurt Facebook's ability to make money. But like we also saw for the first time ever a drop in daily user growth from Facebook, like whereas in their actual daily user number, it only went down a million people, which is about a 20th of 1%. But it was the first time in the entire history of the company that they'd ever reported a drop in daily user growth. And that was like calamitous for it in the stock exchange. And I remember like being in the office here in Business Post showing sort of the pre-market opening because uh, it was on a Thursday and one of the days I'm in the office. And of course, you could see the after hours trading and it wasn't quite 2.30 our time yet. So you could see the future as in what was literally going to happen in about 15 minutes time. And it was one of those things where we had these hours of build up. Like you think about, you know, in America, we were getting up to the news that Facebook was about to lose 200 billion plus dollars. That's woken them up to realize that this is a bottom line issue and that's what's going to address it. Like, you know, it's quite sad to think about it this way, that basically money is the only thing that will make them change. But it's also not exactly surprising, Jess. And is it is it fixable from from your point of view? I mean, can they redeem the Facebook platform? And by that, I mean, you know, can they undo some of the changes to the algorithm to make it better? Can they eliminate more hate? Can they get rid of some of the ads? I mean, what will it take to try and fix the platform to make it usable and an enjoyable experience for users as well? I think Peter Thiel walking away helps because he was certainly one of the biggest advocates for not censoring anything on, on, on it. And I saw censorship, censoring even as a word, but like for not moderating anything on it. So him walking away from the board will certainly help because the, you know, the business brains on it, well, you know, because Thiel obviously is a successful businessman in his own right, but we're going to have people looking at it from a more core business decision and they'll probably be thinking a bit more medium than long term, so in short term, sorry, when it comes to what will make money and what will hurt them financially down the road so i'm quite confident it's fixable it's about the motive they you know to fix it and 
fundamentally the only motive that will work is to make it financially to the benefit of Facebook to make these changes. So I think it can be done, but I think you're going to need more of this sort of public sort of disinterest. Like the average age of a Facebook, main Facebook user, just to be clear, not WhatsApp or Instagram, is getting older. And that's obviously of concern. Like it was an issue Apple had, for example, with the iPhone was the average age of the iPhone purchaser was going up and they took radical action to fix that. And I think it's obviously it's a very different thing because uh, iPhones aren't a social platform. But like Apple realized they needed to up their game to lower that average age. And Facebook, I think, is starting to realize that, too. Yeah, although it's a strange time and although it's not the most ideal circumstances, I think it's an interesting time because, you know, I spent so much of my 20s on Facebook. I got a lot from the platform. Obviously, it's not perfect. It, it is interesting to watch and see how they try to rem- remedy it and what the next two to five years is going to look like for all of their platforms, including the metaverse as well, if that is where Zuckerberg is putting his energy. Uh, but anyway, for now, Emmett Ryan, technology editor with The Business Post as ever. Thanks so much for joining us here on Newstalk. Thanks for having me, Jess. And that is all we have time for this week. If you missed any of the show, you can, of course, listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by GoLoud. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on News Talk Breakfast on Monday morning. John Farley's up next here on News Talk, and I will chat to you next week.